Welcome to the Investor Download, the podcast about the themes driving markets and the economy now and in the future. I'm your host, David Brett. Hi, just a note before we start, if you actually want to watch a recording of this podcast, you can do it by going to Schroeder's YouTube channel. Anyway, on with the show. Enjoy. Twenty twenty two was another extraordinary year. Good morning from the Ukrainian capital Kiev. Gunfire and explosions have been heard here and in the second city of Kharkiv shortly after the Russian president Vladimir Putin authorized a special military operation. The consumer price index nine point one percent higher than a year ago. A nearly 41-year high now, driven, of course, by those record gas prices. Just how long is winter going to last and how cold is it going to get? Like, how much lower is Bitcoin going to go? I think it's just the beginning of crypto winter, to be very honest. It is clearly now the will of the Parliamentary Conservative Party that there should be a new leader of that party and therefore a new Prime Minister. Therefore, I give notice that Liz Truss is elected as the leader of the Conservative and Unionist Party. A few moments ago, Buckingham Palace announced the death of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. Our aim over the medium term is to reach a trend rate of growth of 2.5%. And our plan, Mr Speaker, is to expand the supply side of the economy through tax incentives and reform. The investors did not enjoy the comment from the announcement from the government on Friday about this mini budget. The Bank of England has said that it will buy as many long-dated government bonds as required between now and October 14. So this is a window as it looks to stabilize financial markets. UK Prime Minister Liz Truss today ditched her signature plan to cut taxes after it triggered market turmoil and a huge domestic outcry. I have therefore spoken to His Majesty the King to notify him that I am resigning. Rishi Sunak elected as uh, the UK's new Conservative Party leader. NBC News is now projecting that Democrats will maintain control of the Senate. Press and the pundits are predicting a giant red wave. Uh, it didn't happen. Luis Inácio Lula da Silva has won pre- Brazil's presidential election. China has just announced a major nationwide easing of its zero COVID policy a week after protests against the controls spread across the country. The stunning downfall of Sam Bankman-Fried, the founder of the cryptocurrency exchange FTX. He's in jail in the Bahamas, facing U.S. charges and what a federal prosecutor calls one of the biggest financial frauds in American history. But what does 2023 hold in store for us? I spoke with Johanna Kirkland, Schroeder's Chief Investment Officer, and Keith Wade, Chief Economist, about everything from war to politics to sustainability and systemic risks. But in the first part of the show, we'll discuss the hot topic of the moment, inflation. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, you're listening to the Investor Download. Johanna, welcome to the podcast. First time in the studio for about three years, I think. Yeah, it's great actually to be together. It makes it a lot easier to have a conversation. Yeah, and and Keith, the same as well. It's been a while, hasn't it? Yes, that's right. Yeah, it is the first time I've been in the studio, yeah. So we're here for the outlook for 2023. Uh, Now, I'm slightly trepidatious about this because two of the last three times we've done this, within about two or three months of the podcast going out, there's been a pandemic and then a war. So brace ourselves. We'll do our best. 
Uh, but let's go with the first question. So I suppose the big topic on everyone's mind for next year, bearing in mind it's the cost of living crisis, is inflation. So, Keith, first of all to you, where are we seeing inflation in 2023? Right. Well, yeah, the path of inflation next year, I think, is absolutely critical, um, not just for the economies, but also obviously for markets and interest rates. So everything sort of leads off that. Um, we are forecasting a decline in inflation in the US, um, and we have actually had a peak in the headline rate. We saw that back in the summer. Now that um, energy prices have been coming down, the oil price, the gasoline price has been coming down, that's feeding through. So the headline rate of inflation has come come off, although it still remains pretty high in the US. It's 7.7%, a little bit lower than it is uh, here in the UK, where it's 11 and even in the Eurozone, it's nearly 11% as well. But the US does seem to be leading the way here with inflation coming down. A lot of the focus will be on the core rate, though. So when you strip out those energy prices and see what's actually happening to underlying inflation. And what we see there are two trends. I mean, one is that goods prices are coming down now. So that's really helpful because the supply chain problems that really push goods prices up, those supply chains are really easing off. So, you know, COVID, for example, has obviously uh, died down quite a lot. There is still an issue a bit in China, but the supplies from China are beginning to come through. So you're seeing goods prices begin to come down. And that's that's really encouraging. But the other theme, of course, is that service sector prices are continuing to rise. So there's a bit of a battle, a sort of two-way tug going on. We think that actually uh, the decline in goods prices will gradually dominate and that we will see the core rate of inflation start to come down. The price of that will be quite a slowdown in the in the US economy, which, which has been coming through. Um, but we are encouraged by the recent data that suggests that if you look at the retail sector, you can see that uh, companies have built up inventories and they're beginning to discount those inventories in order to clear them. Now, that sort of suggests that the consumer is beginning to slow down, which is sort of what we would expect. But it also means that inflation will continue to come down as we go through 2023. So are we saying this is more of a natural effect or are the interest rates starting to kick in? Yeah, it's um, it's it's primarily, the I think, the interest rates beginning to kick in and uh, the, the big issue always with interest rates is how long does it take for an interest rate increase to actually start to kick in and affect the economy? And economists generally say, you know, six to 12 months. So, you know, if you think about when the Fed started raising rates, we're, we're at that point now. So we're starting to see the impact of the lags coming through. You've seen a big slowdown in the housing market. You've got that big squeeze on consumer income. So, you know, everything is pointed towards that effect starting to come through. Okay. So we are starting to see a slowdown uh, with the consumer. We have talked about secondary effects like wage inflation. How's that sitting at the moment? Yeah, so wage inflation has eased a little bit, but not very much. And I think that's really going to be crucial as to how the Fed reacts to this. Because essentially um, what the Fed wants to do, it wants to see inflation coming down, but it wants to be sure that inflation is coming down on a sustainable basis. And you know, quite a lot of the speeches that the Fed members make are often sort of peppered with references to not easing too early and not making the repeating the mistakes of the past where they thought that inflation was beaten and then they stopped raising rates and, and then inflation came back. So they want to avoid that. And I think what they will look at in order to be sure of that is the labour market. And they'll want to see, uh, I hate to say it, but they'll want to see unemployment rising. And that would be a sign that wage inflation would be beginning to come under control. Are we at a point where central banks in particular have entered a period where they're prioritising the trying to defeat inflation over growth? 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, inflation is the absolute priority. I mean, at the end of the day, if you ask an economist, it's all the same thing. If you don't beat inflation, you're not going to get growth. Um, you know, there's no two ways about it. So it's um, they have, they have to prioritise that at the moment. And, and of course, that's been absolutely critical because it means interest rates have been rising at a time when economic activity has been slowing. But the, the central banks have had to hang tough on that. And Johanna, how's the inflation question hanging over a market's perspective? Well, I think the first obvious impact of inflation has been the rising discount rate. And I think the markets now move from denial to acceptance on this front in the sense that when we look at what's priced into um, rate markets uh, for 2023, the, the, the expectations are realistic now about where rates need to get to, which is a big change relative to last summer. So in that sense, I think that provided inflation does come down, we could start to see a more benign environment um, for, for, for markets in, in 2023. But it does really come down to inflation. If inflation persists, then we've got a problem on our hands because then rates might have to go even further. And again, that would be another stage for the markets to digest from a valuation standpoint. Yeah, Keith, central banks appear to move a little bit late when raising interest rates to tackle inflation. And unlike the financial crisis, they didn't appear to be coordinated. So have we entered a new era where it's every country for themselves? Yeah, I, I think this is a good point because we were just talking about the Fed. Um, you know, if you look at the Bank of England or the ECB, they were much later and have been much slower as well in terms of raising interest rates. Um, so the Bank of England has, has got rates up to 3%. It's sort of talking about, you know, maybe raising rates a little bit more, but not so much. Um, whereas the Fed has been much more aggressive. Uh, it seems that uh, the Bank of England and the European Central Bank have been more concerned about the impact of their tightening on growth and unemployment and the housing market and so on. But, you know, as we, as we were saying earlier, you've got to beat inflation. And as a result, I think, because the bank has been slow and the ECB have been slow, we have seen these very high rates of inflation coming through in Europe, which means that they've actually got quite a bit more work to do going forward. Um, so it hasn't been as coordinated as we've seen in the past. But, you know, I think each country has really been focusing on its own inflation issue. I think just one other point on this is actually the part of the world that has moved quite quickly on inflation was actually the emerging markets because they started to move last year on inflation. And consequently, of course, they're actually getting very near the end of their tightening cycle, um, whereas I think Europe is probably the furthest behind. And, you know, it's sort of actually nice. The countries are starting to move in slightly different directions. That must create opportunities for investors. Yes, it does. I mean, in the last decade, with quantitative easing and rates pretty much pinned down at zero across the world, very little differentiation, it meant the sort of relative country positions were hard to take. We're now, you know, look, we still have to work our way through a recession probably in 2023. But certainly, I mean, I remember when we came out of the 2001 2001 recession, you know, with economies recovering at different speeds, it was, a, it was quite a lot of opportunity there in looking at one region versus another. So I think that will be a great opportunity over the next couple of years. And I would agree also with Keith that, you know, in many cases, the major emerging market economies have already taken the pain. Um, they were preemptive in raising rates and we do see value in emerging market assets. And is that a lesson they've learned from previous crises? Well, of course, they never had the luxury of running an orthodox policy because they have had so many crises in the last 20 years. Um, while in some senses, we've sort of been ripping up the rule book in the West. <laughs> and now we're dealing with the consequences of that. Get in touch with us by email at shorterspodcasts at shorters.com or visit our website, shorters.com forward slash investor download. 
I'm going to dip my toe very gently into geopolitics now. Uh, we saw a controversial midterms in the sense that the ruling party actually did a lot better than they previously expected. We've seen uh, Bolsonaro lose the election in Brazil. Uh, from a geopolitical point of view, and I suppose I'm talking more towards US-China relations, but in general, uh, how are things looking from that point of view? Right. So um, we, we put out a piece um, in the summer talking about New World Order and really sort of identifying this, this what we called a fault line um, that had opened up as a result of the Russia-Ukraine uh, conflict and the fact that, you know, countries around the world have sort of taken different sides. And there did seem to be this gap between the West and particularly, obviously, NATO and um, countries like China on the other side, which was sort of taking a more sort of neutral, sort of pro-Russian neutrality, I think, is the way it's been described. So, you know, that is something that has concerned us because, you know, it's the fact that China is still buying Russian oil, which is enabling a lot of the conflict to continue. And you could see how that could cause a lot of stress and tension uh, in the West. Um, so that that has been one of the things we've been concerned about. I have to say that recently, things seem to have got a little bit better with the Biden G meeting in, in Bali at the G20. It seems as though that has gone reasonably well. And um, the, the West has also sort of recognised that in some ways China could play quite a positive role in the Russia-Ukraine crisis because they actually, China is the, probably the only country that really has leverage over Russia. And the fact that China has, you know, said that nuclear weapons should not be used and all that is, is extremely helpful. So, so tensions have probably ebbed a little bit. They could come back again. There's clearly, you know, um, the Biden administration have not been particularly friendly towards China. It has to be said. They've put these restrictions on technology. They've taken it further than, than Trump had done. Uh, so there's still quite a lot of challenges ahead. And I still think that, you know, the world could become more fragmented over the medium term as a result. But, you know, at this particular point, I think things have probably thawed a little bit. And Johanna, what's the asset implications of that? Well, I guess, I mean, if we're thinking about um, some kind of repeat of the Cold War in some sense, um, I think that that means strategically you do see more deglobalization, which is something that Keith has been talking about, and more stockpiling, which is supportive of commodities as an asset class. And then equally, when you move into a hot war, as unfortunately we've seen in the case of Ukraine, the main transmission mechanism is via commodities. So I think that, you know, coupled then with the sort of inflationary regime we find ourselves in, it does argue for commodities being an interesting asset class, you know, a source of diversification. Uh, which, again, has been another change over previous years, right? Yes. I mean, in the last decade, you never owned commodities. And in fact, we were negative for them for so long that we started to wonder why we even had a team dedicated to looking at commodities within multi-asset. And that was because we were in a deflationary environment. In a deflationary environment with overcapacity, commodities are not attractive. They're not diversifying to the equity exposure that you have. But in a more inflationary regime with geopolitical risks and deglobalization, actually commodities can be quite interesting. Okay, I want to move on to uh, systemic risks, actually. Um, and over the last year, we've had issues with the crypto market. We've had the crypto winter, so-called, uh, and also the collapse of FTX. And also in the UK, we had issues with the gilt market, uh, with the mini budget. Um, Johanna, just from your perspective, what do you think those two events tell us about systemic risks within financial markets? 
Well, for now, what they are is they're symptomatic of the fact that we're in a tightening liquidity environment. And, you know, as we've often said in markets, when the tide goes out, you work out, you find out who's wearing a swimming costume. And there's been a bit of that going on. So in the case of, uh, of crypto, it's been about taking off the fret, taking out the froth in the market, the speculative excesses. And in the case of the gilt market, you know, we had that trigger from the fiscal policy that then exposed the vulnerability of the UK. So for now, just symptomatic of that tightening liquidity, when liquidity is tightening, the risk of financial accidents does increase. In terms of more structural risks, you know, so far we've had what we call a cyclical bear market caused by rising rates. So if you get relief on rates, hopefully we'll, we'll We'll get over it eventually. Where could it get more structural? Now, if you look at, um, you know, 2000, 2003, and then also the financial crisis, what happened was we then had the corporate sector get itself into trouble. So we had another wave. It was more structural. Certainly, talking to our bottom-up investors, the evidence is that the banks in particular are in pretty strong shape because the financial crisis cast such a long shadow that actually we haven't seen the kind of excesses we would have seen before. So it looks like maybe the corporate sector is not a, a source of structural imbalance. The main risk I would say if I was looking for structural systemic risks is still on the sovereign side. So in that sense, the gilt market could be a potential canary in the gold mine, in some sense telling us that markets are going to question um, the, the, the credibility of governments. And as they have this balancing act to try and bring inflation under control, but support the populations from a cost of living crisis, can they maintain that credibility? Can they keep a lid on sovereign yields? That could be a risk in Europe, for example. So that would be a potential risk scenario, not our central, but something to think about. So there could still be the odd issue out there for investors to deal with? Yes. Essentially, where you get a more structural bear market is where you get... Cyclical bear market is where it's driven by Fed rate, central banks raising rates. Once they get inflation under control, they bring them back down again. Structural bear market, in some senses, where you start to get a tightening of liquidity that's almost independent of central bank policy. So you think about the financial crisis. The problem was that credit markets seized up. So then you get this sort of this vicious circle. And in this particular instance, if, for example, we were to see an unhinging of the government bond yields as a result of concerns about, you know, fiscal sustainability, that could be a situation where, in some sense, the central banks, it would be hard for them to keep that under control. But as I'm saying, that's a risk scenario. So far, our central scenario is we're in a cyclical bear market driven by rates and a peaking in inflation will help us to get through it. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of responsibility on the shoulders of policymakers, governments and central banks. Uh, the on the guilt issue specifically, the Bank of England seemed very reluctant to step in, and certainly until the last mi minute. I mean, given what's gone on since 2008, where it seemed like, like every single central bank would say, we'll do whatever it takes. Are we seeing a shift in position now from central banks from what it was back in 2008, in fact, up until recently? Well, yeah, we certainly are. And the Bank of England was reluctant to step in and provide that support because it was just about to start going the other way and, and reversing the QE. It was about to do QT, quantitative tightening. So, you know, all of a sudden it had to actually go in and offer to buy up to £60 billion worth of, of gilts. I mean, I think they played that quite well because they provided the support to the market. They didn't actually have to buy £60 billion in the net in the end. And they were actually quite tough. I mean, they set a hard deadline, said everyone's got to sort themselves out 
out by you know this particular time, and they stuck to that, um, which I think also kept a lot of pressure on the government to get themselves sorted out as a, as a side effect. But you know, it was a reversal of the direction of policy. But you know, just sort of picking up on what Johanna was saying, I think you know we are now in a new era. You know, when we were exploring the funding of the British government and through the gilt market and so on, you you can see how important QE has been to that. And if that's coming to an end, you've got to find other people to buy the the bonds. And you know, this was, a, to my mind, the, the the return of the bond market vigilantes. You know, suddenly it was like over to the private sector, and you know, the private sector. Well, actually, we don't like what we're seeing here. You know, we're we're seeing unfunded tax cuts and so on, and you've got an economy with double digit inflation. So you know, what on earth are you doing? And of course, that has now been very swiftly reversed. And this, I think, as a result of this tightening of liquidity that Johanna was referring to, I think it's countries like the UK that have relied very much on QE to fund the budget deficit. They also run current account deficits. So you actually rely on overseas investors coming in to take that, that pick up that slack. It does make you quite vulnerable. And I think that's something that we'll be looking at around the world as to where those vulnerabilities will be and who will actually be the, the stronger sovereigns with the better financial positions, because those are the ones that would do better in this environment. And what does it tell us about the relationship between central banks and governments now? Has that changed? Well, it's, it's going to get more difficult because clearly, and we saw this in the autumn statement in the UK when they presented the new figures for the budget deficits. You know, the, the budget deficit in the UK this coming year is going to be running at sort of about 7.5% of GDP. About 4% of that is higher interest payments, or is, is the interest bill, basically. And that interest bill has more than doubled. So interest payments are now becoming very significant. And when you look at the levels of debt to GDP, you can quite easily see why. Because, you know, a lot of countries like the UK are around about 100% of GDP and their debt to GDP ratio. So you get a change in interest rates that immediately knocks onto the amount of money the government has. So I think this this could create quite a interesting, if not maybe difficult dynamic between the government and the central bank, because the government will clearly be like, oh, please don't raise rates, you know, and the central bank saying, well, we have to get inflation under control, else the situation will be worse. But, you know, that that could lead to all kinds of things, and particularly whether we'll see, you know, more populist governments coming in, or more pressure to change the remit of independent central banks like the Bank of England, and say, well, actually, we don't want you to focus so much on inflation, we'd like to focus more on growth, uh, trying to find ways of making them keep rates lower. Okay, let's move away from central banks. Um, we've just had the end of COP27 and COP15, um, but we know the climate threat isn't over. Carbon emissions have risen this year, and we've seen extreme weather from droughts to floods affecting harvests. Governments, however, appear more distracted by the cost of living crisis, with countries appearing to backtrack on some commitments, like closing down coal-fired power plants. Um, so, Johanna, this is you. How is all this backdrop affecting, I suppose, the energy transition, first of all, and climate and sustainability investing in general? I think, you know, the commitment to net zero, we always said, is, is a path, not a target, in the sense that you're going to get some kind of cyclical variation as people try and achieve those targets over the, the long term. And right now, with the cost of living crisis, with uh, the geopolitical risks in Ukraine, it was perhaps inevitable that governments would have to find, you know, sort of go back a bit on some of their promises to, to basically get people through the winter. 
But strategically, I think that it strengthens the focus on the energy transition because ultimately from a strategic perspective, I think that Europe has woken up to the fact that um, its energy policy is a security issue and that actually there is a need to reduce their reliance on uh, Russian energy. And so actually, I think it reinforces the commitment to alternative forms of energy. And again, ultimately reinforces that commitment to net zero. And Keith, I suppose same thing for economics long term. It still makes more sense to take this path down towards cleaner energy and renewables and that energy transition. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I completely agree with what Johanna says there. And it was interesting in in the US when they passed the Inflation Reduction Act, one of the key things that got that through, because that's actually all about increasing expenditure on renewables. You know, the the, the key voter there um, comes from a, a coal producing state, but he voted for the renewables because he said it's a security issue. You know, we want to be independent. We don't want to have to get caught up in this this whole oil price thing. And I think a lot of European governments are, are feeling uh, exactly the same way. Um, I think the other point, though, about the whole uh, energy transition is this is a, a, a really good source of growth for economies um, because I think, you know, once we get through this phase, we are still going to be looking for, you know, where's the next strong uh, thematic for growth. And I still think that the energy transition, the amount of capital that needs to be invested, you know, it's still two or three times more than what we're doing at the moment. So that could pr- provide tremendous growth um, to, to the world economy, particularly, I think, to, to the US and Europe, which have got quite a, a way to go on this. Okay, so we've spoken about a lot of uh, things uh, this morning. So just in summary, what do you see for the economics outlook for 2023? Well, I mean, there's an awful lot of gloom around at the moment. Um, and, you know, and we've probably not been helping by talking about recession <laughs> and so on. But, you know, in some ways, what you get next year is a sign that inflation is going to be beaten. That, I think, is the key thing. Um, and I think people have now got adjusted to the idea that there is going to be a recession. I think that's getting much more factored into economists' forecasts. Um, but I think the key thing will be that easing of inflation. And then, it won't happen immediately, but then the markets and, and investors and economists can start to think about, oh, well, interest rates could probably start coming down from these levels. So that will be more towards the end of next year. But I think that's, that could be you know, quite a positive theme. And Jana, final word for you. What does that all mean for markets in 2023? Well, I think tactically, you know, bonds are pricing quite a bit. You can buy them on yield now. They're not going to be as uncorrelated as they used to be because inflation is the risk here. But because they've repriced, I think there's quite a decent yield cushion now across fixed income. And by that, I mean, you know, credit, emerging market debt, um, not, not necessarily just government bonds. From an equity standpoint, you know, all our cyclical analysis that Keith and I have done together for, you know, for the last, well, it's been a while, hasn't it, Keith? For a few years, let's put it that way. <laughs> yes. um, says that actually the point where you really buy equities is in the midst of recession. So that would argue for potential opportunity to get quite bullish, maybe by the middle of next year. So I think, you know, still a bit of more work to do, still some risk. But, you know, I think we're getting through it provided we're in a cyclical bear market. What are the risks? It's more structural. And then, you know, we've discussed that today. Absolutely. Uh, Johanna and Keith, another fascinating conversation. Have a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And great to see you at last. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. If you want more on Schroeder's Outlooks for 2023, there's a whole raft of content at schroeders.com. 
forward slash outlooks. And you can watch future investor download shows on Schroeder's YouTube channel. That's it for 2022. That's the last show of the year. We thank you so much for listening and your support. New shows will begin on January the 12th. Until then, we wish you a very happy holidays and a safe and merry new year. Well, that was the show. We very much hope you enjoyed it. If you want to find out more, check out our website, schroders.com forward slash the investor download. You can also get in contact with us about anything in the show or ideas for future shows at Schroders podcast at schroders.com. Please remember to subscribe to us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review. We're now doing one show a week, which will be available every Thursday from 5pm UK time. Thanks very much for listening, but above all, keep safe and go well. Cheers. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation or recommendation of any funds, services or products or to adopt any investment strategy. 